the team at Subject ACT acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we broadcast on, the Ngunnawal Ngambri people, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. The program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio 2XX FM 98.3. I'm Sophie Singh and it's great to have your company. On Subject ACT we bring you stories connecting with our local Canberra community and beyond, exploring current and community affairs from a curious and informed perspective. Affairs with a global dimension. By any standard, there is an environmental and climate crisis happening across the globe. On Subject ACT, we take a look at the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, the primary federal legislation governing the protection of the Australian environment, and planned amendments to that act, which have environmental organisations across Australia voicing concerns that the amendments potentially further erode our ability to protect and conserve the environment. Basha Stazak from the Australian Conservation Foundation joins us to discuss. Basha, thanks very much for coming on to Subject ACT. Uh, no, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Basha, the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, and let's just call it the EPBC for short, states that its objective, and I'm paraphrasing, is to protect the environment, promote sustainable development and biodiversity conservation, protect and conserve heritage, promote cooperation between various stakeholders, contribute to Australia meeting its international obligations and recognising the knowledge and role of First Nations people in the sustainable management of the environment and promote the use of that knowledge in cooperation with knowledge holders. Basha, the EPBC has now been in force for 21 years, so how is Australia doing? How does our scorecard stack up against those objectives? Unfortunately and sadly, it's not great. Australia leads the world in mammal extinctions, and it's got, you know, one of the worst extinction rates in the world. And that's incredibly sad. And it is, in part, a failure of Australia's premier federal environmental legislation, the EPBC Act. This year, the EPBC Act is undergoing an independent review. And in the interim report of that review, which was released in June by Professor Graham Samuel, Professor Samuel found that, yes, Australia's environment is in decline, and the act isn't working. It's not working for the environment, it's not working for the community, and it's not working for business. Did that uh, report suggest where the deficiencies of the EPBC Act lie? It highlighted a number of deficiencies. It's quite a long and comprehensive interim report. One of those was the failure of compliance and enforcement, and it highlighted that we really needed to see an independent compliance and enforcement agency or regulator to help with that. But it also highlighted issues around data, around resourcing and around community rights, so the ability of the community to transparently look at decisions and challenge them. I know the ACF put in a submission to that review. Do you feel that the interim report picked up and correctly identified both the gaps and measures to address and remediate those gaps? The interim report picked up on a number of the issues that ACF has identified and also that the Places You Love Alliance has identified. Places You Love is a, an alliance of a range of environment groups from across Australia that worked with an independent panel of lawyers. And those environmental lawyers looked at you know, the failure of our, of our act and what was wrong with it. And that's where we drew our submission from. And a number of those were picked up by Professor Graham Samuel. It is 
just an interim report. Uh, the final report is to come. It hasn't been released publicly, but yes, it did. It picked up a number of issues. Probably most importantly, one of the things that Professor Graham Samuel picked up on was the fact that actually what we need ultimately is a complete overhaul of that act. This isn't a problem of amending or tweaking. It actually needs a complete overhaul. Do you have any sense of when the final report is likely to be released? We know that the Minister for the Environment, Susan Lee, has received the report from Professor Graham Samuel and the government has 15 sitting days, 15 parliamentary days to release it. So we're really looking at anywhere between now and February. Graham Samuel's identified one of the issues or one of the deficiencies being insufficient harmonisation between federal legislation and state and territory legislation. What do you think that greater harmonisation would look like if it were to be implemented and achieved? Well, we see the federal government as essential, that what we would argue is that the federal government needs to be the leader on environmental protection. The federal government is a government that absolutely holds obligations for our international responsibilities. The environment also doesn't recognise, you know, state borders, And so it's really actually looking at the environment as a whole across Australia. And that's why the responsibility ultimately needs to lie with the federal government. We actually want to see an increased responsibility from the federal government around environmental protection. And did Graham Samuels recommend that greater responsibility be recognised and undertaken by the federal government? Professor Samuels certainly recognised that the federal government had an important role to play And he did make a number of recommendations that sort of recognise that. So one, as I refer to, is this idea of actually having a federal compliance and enforcement regulator. The other was around legally enforceable, strong national standards that apply across the country. So the standards that exist in the current EPBC, are they legally enforceable? One of the key things with the legislation is that ultimately, certainly for the assessment and approval decisions, the ultimate decision lies with the minister and the minister has the discretion to make the decision on approval. And so they are enforceable, I guess, if you would, through the minister. We cannot actually challenge the minister's decision except for that the minister failed to follow the process. As opposed Um, to the merits of the decision itself. That's right. Basha, the Morrison government has proposed amendments to the EPBC Act, which are currently making their way through the parliament. Any chance that those amendments are picking up on at least the interim report recommendations? So this has been one of the most sort of surprising and disappointing actions we've seen is that what the government has done is it's cherry-picked one of the suggestions in the interim report, which was around the idea of giving states and territories responsibility for approval decisions for projects or for developments. Now, Professor Samuel outlined this in a combination of other reforms What the government has done is picked up on that and introduced amendments specifically to facilitate that change. They've actually just basically replicated a bill that has been put forward once before back in uh, around 2014 when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. So we've had this long review, we're still halfway through it, we're waiting for the final report and what the government has basically introduced is a bill that they've introduced before in 2014 and is trying again to get it through. So to what extent does it really seem that they're going to genuinely look at the recommendations of the full review and the final report? Well, that's an excellent question. The Minister has said a number of times, the Environment Minister has said a number of times that there is further legislation to come, but we haven't yet seen that legislation. We believe quite strongly that these reforms need to be done as a package, that we need to see the release of the final report from Professor Samuel. Time needs to be taken to consider that 
And then you need a holistic set of reforms that are done together that are going to really improve the protections for our environment, because that's ultimately what we really need. This is the Environment Act. It needs to be about protecting our environment. So the suggestion that or the amendment to devolve decision-making powers to the states and territories, what is the key concern of that? Is it because they don't have the legislative instruments at the state and territory level to make those sort of decisions or approvals? Yeah, that's right. There's a great report that was done by the Environmental Defenders Office that looked at how well the states and territories met the current benchmarks, the current act benchmarks around protection. And what it found is that no state met more than two of those benchmarks. So the states and territories fall well short of what's required. And often part of the problem is they themselves can be the proponent for these developments, you know, states and territories proponents for roads, uh, for a number of infrastructure projects. And so they were technically being put in a position where they are both the agency trying to get the project up and the approval for it. A clear conflict Um, of interest. Exactly. And so we are very, very concerned about the idea of devolving these responsibilities to states and territories. And the evidence suggests that that would be a significant weakening of our environmental protections. What we actually need is a strengthening at the federal level The federal government has a greater role to play. In the proposed amendments, are there some stipulations that for the state and territories to take on that increased approval making process that they must implement the necessary standards so to remove or somehow mediate that conflict of interest? So that's one of the most disturbing things about this bill that has been put forward is there are no safeguards in this legislation that has been or this amendment, if you will, that has been put forward by the government to express how conflict of interest will be dealt with, deal with how any standards that might be developed will be dealt with. None of that is in this bill. Basha, what's the status of the amendments bill? So where is it at in the parliamentary process? So the amendment bill has passed the the House of Representatives and it is now sitting in the Senate. What happened yesterday is that there was a decision made in the Senate to send the bill to a Senate inquiry. However, that Senate inquiry is incredibly rushed so basically, submissions are open till Wednesday. There will be a day of hearings the following week, and the inquiry is meant to report on the 27th of November. So it's an incredible rush job, and not at all a genuine look at this legislation of what it means, because you just simply don't have the time in that kind of time frame. Absolutely. So what was the reason for calling what seemed like a fairly mock exercise? Well, we certainly know that both the Greens, the Australian Labor Party and three crossbench senators, Rex Patrick of South Australia, Sterling Griff of South Australia and Jackie Lambie in Tassie, have all been saying this bill has got some problems in it. And particularly the crossbench senators have been saying, look, we want to look at this more closely. We need an inquiry. So it looks like the government is responding to that call, but really only in a bit of a conflict exercise to say, look, we're going to do an inquiry. We're not really going to give you enough time to look at this closely. But Australia is a signatory to many international agreements and conventions on environmental protection, and yet there's a prospect of, of these amendments passing and, as you say, weakening even further environmental protections in this country. Are those international agreements so weak that they can't provide any sort of a, a stopper or an impediment to these domestic laws being pushed through? Well, at the end of the day, I mean, look, there are some strong international environmental agreements. Uh, the Ramsar Convention, which looks after our wetlands, and Australia is a signatory to these. But at the end of the day, it's Australian law that determines how effective that is. And so we are reliant on the EPBC Act 
being both strong and effective at environmental protection to ensure that we are complying with those obligations. And are there any international bodies that environmental organisations in Australia can appeal to or engage with to provide some additional leverage for stronger domestic laws to be put in place? Uh, Absolutely. There's a number of international bodies that look at depending on the convention. One is, uh, as I referenced, the Ramsar Convention, which is around protection of wetlands, internationally recognised wetlands. And that's actually a prime example because what we've got is a project being proposed up in Queensland at Moreton Bay, Toonda Harbour, which is proposing some apartments in a Ramsar wetland. And this is a decision that will come under the EPBC Act to the Federal Environment Minister, and a number of the groups that have been working there on the ground have been engaging with the Ramsar Convention and saying, well, you know, what's the point of having Ramsar protection if you can just build apartments in it? So there is a role there to play. There is another body, the Convention of Biological Diversity, not the most catchy name. And this convention, there is now a big global push for a new deal to be signed. And it's sort of being called the Paris Deal for Nature. So there is growing momentum globally to see stronger protections and stronger targets for nature protection in all countries. Going back to the example that you mentioned around this development proposal for apartments uh, or for a complex in a recognised wetland, paint the picture, if these amendments go through, what would be the different political landscape and legislative landscape uh, that you'd then be operating in with an amended EPBC? a really, really good point. And this is exactly why it's a concern, because the Queensland government has basically already signed off under Queensland board. They've recognised this as critical infrastructure and they are pushing this apartment complex through. So if they were just the agency responsible, we would have, there would be significant concerns. Yes. Basha, you would have to sort of have your head in the sand to not agree to some extent that there is an environmental and climate crisis around the world. I read that Australia is now in a sustained period of extreme weather and we only need to look at the horrific bushfires uh, last season. How does the ACF, how does the environmental movement and how do people who want and are desperate for action on climate change break through on this issue? Unfortunately, there's no simple answer to that question. I wish there was. I think there is a number of different ways people can engage and I wouldn't underestimate the importance of engaging with your local politicians, with state and federal politicians on the need for climate action, on the need for strong environment laws. Politicians do need to hear this message and they need to hear it from as many, many voices as possible. So it can often feel a bit like you're shouting into the wind when you engage, but it is is looked at seriously and politicians do respond to that. So we do need to just keep pushing and keep engaging and keep advocating through as many different channels as we can to get that message across. Basha, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking with you and thanks for coming on to Subject ACT. No worries. Thank you for having me. That was Basha Stazak from the Australian Conservation Foundation on the proposed changes to the primary federal environmental laws and the ACF's concerns that the changes proposed by the Morrison government could further weaken environmental protections in Australia. Next, we hear from Sean Dooley from BirdLife Australia and the potential impact that the amendments to the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, if passed by the Senate, could have on already fragile and threatened bird species. If you've just tuned in, 
You're listening to me, Sophie Singh, and the program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio, 2XX FM 98.3. We're looking at the laws that govern the protection of our natural environment and our animal life and exploring the proposed changes to those laws. Like the ACF, BirdLife Australia is worried about the potential impact that the proposed changes to the EPBC Act could have on the protection of Australia's natural environment. I spoke to Sean Dooley from BirdLife Australia recently about National Bird Week and the Aussie bird count and during that conversation I asked Sean about the review into the EPBC Act. The Samuels review into the EPBC Act was pretty damning about how ineffective the Act has been over the 20 years of its operation and one of the key findings was that he said there are no national standards that we hold up for our essentially accounting for the environment and how well we're doing in protecting it. And so we're not working against standards saying we should be setting this goal of saving this many species, those sorts of things. And so a lot of actions that are detrimental to our threatened species just slip under the radar because there's there's no true accountability. And of course, that was the first thing that in the government's response to the interim report, it was the first thing that they rejected out of hand that they aren't going to be bringing in. They're saying that they can continue the way we're going and that should be adequate, which is clearly opposite to what the report has said. How might the proposed devolution of approval powers to the states and territories impact on the protection of endangered bird life? We've already seen in the 20 years of the Act that on many, many occasions, threatened birds have been subject to state government action or or even to state government allowing things to happen that's never been referred back properly to the federal system. So we see birds like the, um, for instance, say the swift parrot is one of the most egregious examples. It breeds in Tasmania and then migrates across to mainland Australia in winter and so you can see it roaming through the uh, forests of the southeast looking for flowering patches of eucalypt. Yet in states like New South Wales, there are still known vital habitats for swift parrots that are subject to logging in the south coast. And even more disastrously, in Tasmania, there's been active logging of trees and habitat that we know swift parrots are nesting in. And the Federal Act has been unable to intervene because the state's can take these actions and say that it's all fine and and it doesn't get referred back to the Federal Threatened Species Act because there are clauses in there that allow such things as the Regional Forest Agreement to override any of these national threatened species laws, which is clearly failing birds like the swift parrot, which is on a trajectory to extinction. And we've just seen time after time that the states are less likely to be taking a national picture when it comes to threatened species. They're looking at short-term bottom-line budget fixes that they can get through approving developments of various uh, stripes, whether it be a mining development in, you know, for a coal mine on black-throated finch habitat in Queensland or a coastal development internationally protected wetlands in Moreton Bay and Brisbane or whether it be logging of swift parrot habitat in known swift parrot habitat in Tasmania or New South Wales. State governments are ticking off on those without looking at the big picture and the current nature laws are just letting that go through to the keeper and we're seeing just more and more species every year added to the threatened species list as a result. 
And yet the government's response to this interim report is to say, let's hand over more of that, that power, more of those decision makings in the name of supposed efficiency to the states. So there's going to be even less oversight if the current response that the government's putting up before the Senate gets voted through. And if that devolution to the states and territories does occur, does the Commonwealth basically wash its hand completely? Well, this seems to be the... the this seems to be the indication of, of this government and it, it's the Australian government that signed up to the international treaties such as the World Heritage legislation. They've signed up to these international treaties. It's their responsibility to make sure that, that our protection of environment that we've pledged internationally is followed through. The states haven't signed those treaties. So really it is a federal government responsibility to make sure that we are looking after our threatened species and the, and the environments that support them. And so it's just counterintuitive that they would hand over their responsibility. They talk about trying to create a, an efficiency of process, but it just means that in the end, when the states take actions that are detrimental to our international commitments, then there is just going to actually be more of this appearing before the courts than there currently is. And it's just going to slow down and make more uncertain the whole process of, of how we deal with environmental threats of development. Sean, the impacts of climate change are being extensively documented. What impacts are most evident or being reported on um, bird life in Australia and more broadly? Climate change has multiple impacts on birds and often they're hard to dissociate from other factors that are impacting on bird populations such as habitat clearance and wetland loss. Certainly we're seeing things, a lot of water birds, the populations overall are going down but we're seeing more and more water birds such as the now infamous ibis arriving in cities and hanging around city wetlands and parks and waterways. And that's as much because of the way we've used the landscape and used water in the landscape, but it's also the impact is exacerbated and fast-tracked because of what's happening with climate. The intensity and frequency of drought is really messing with the natural cycle of, of these water birds, and we're seeing a lot of pressure put on them. But also, similarly, things like the intensity and frequency of bushfires is impacting birds and we're seeing a lot of uh, the birds that did survive the fires over the past year. A lot more instances of very shy or or very sort of birds you'd normally see in the middle of the bush turning up in suburban gardens. There's so many things hitting our birds at the moment through climate change, through habitat loss and through other things like invasive weeds and predators and things like that, that it's very difficult to gauge the impact that these are having. That was Sean Dooley from BirdLife Australia. Subject ACT will continue to follow this story, including the outcome of the extremely fast-tracked Senate inquiry that Busher mentioned, which is due to report on November 27th. And that brings us to the end of tonight's program. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Sophie Singh. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 